This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And our favorite subject, as you know, is American history. And as always, our history stories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And by the way, you can go to their online portal, hillsdale.edu, and sign up for their free and terrific online courses. Nowadays, we never have to think about how long a message might take to get somewhere or to someone. In fact, often, if there isn't a near instantaneous reply, we often get frustrated or even annoyed. If the message is going from Oxford, Mississippi, or sending to, let's say, Oxford, England, we want it now and we want it fast. John Steele Gordon, a historian and friend of Hillsdale, is here to tell us how the story of the telegraph and the transatlantic cable changed the world. You know, some inventions are more important than others. I mean, Oscar Hammerstein I, the great opera impresario, was the grandfather of the, of the lyricist, uh, who was a great inventor too, by the way, um, but he once invented a reversible necktie so that you could spill gravy on two sides. <laughs> um, and he, he sold it, he made money on this thing, but this did not change the world. <laughs> It had been known for a hundred years that you could send electricity down a wire. Many very important scientists of the 18th century had um, investigated this, including Benjamin Franklin, whose famous experiment with the kite and the key proved that lightning is an electrical phenomenon. If you're tempted to reproduce Franklin's experiment, I would strongly suggest that you don't. It was a parlor game until the 19th century when wire became cheap because wire factories powered by steam could draw out copper very quickly and efficiently. Before then, you had to beat it out. And so the telegraph became practical in the early 19th century, and people all over the world were trying to do it. Two men in England, Wheatstone and Cook, developed and patented a system in 1837 that actually worked. It was kind of clunky, but it worked. Samuel Morris in this country sent his famous message, What Hath God Wrought, in 1844. And his system eventually became adopted worldwide because it was simpler than the other systems and also because of his marvelously efficient code, which is the only part of a whole system that he invented entirely himself. Everything else was mainly bits and pieces he had borrowed. Uh, and the code was, it was so efficient that people discovered very soon that they could, at first they would write down the dots and the dashes and then they would translate them. They found that once telegraphers got used to it that they could actually do it by ear and just write down the message. One of the very first people to learn how to do that, by the way, uh, was a young telegrapher in, in Pittsburgh whose name was Andrew Carnegie. And telegraph wires sprung up like crazy. They often used the, um, the rights of way of, of the railroads as a convenient place to string their poles and their wires. And it wasn't long before the railroads learned that they could use the telegraph as a signaling system because most of the railroads in those days were single track. And so if there was an oncoming train expected and it didn't come, well, this train had to sit on the siding until it came. Uh, with a the telegraph, they could telegraph ahead saying, you know, we're stuck, you guys can come on. Suddenly the railroads were much more efficient. Prices went down, use went up. But underwater telegraphy was another matter. Nobody knew if it was possible, but there was a very strong reason to try. And that was in the 1840s and 50s, the strongest country in the world uh, was located on an archipelago off of Northwest Europe. They wanted to be able to connect to Europe. And so it was trying, I mean, the English have always loved to be, they, they love that 22 miles of water between them and 
the French. But um, they also, I mean, the, the famous mid 19th century Times of London um, headline Fog and Channel, continent cut off. And so a pair of brothers named Brett ordered 30 miles of telegraph wire and put on the back of a boat and reeled it out across the channel and tried to send a message back to Dover. And the message got there it was gibberish, undecipherable, but at least it proved that you could get an electric signal through 22 miles of, of, of submarine cable. And what made the cable possible was this stuff called gutta percha. Uh, the sole use of gutta percha today is it's used to fill root canals after you've had the nerve removed. The, the dentist puts in gutta percha. And shortly after it came into use, a, a golf playing clergyman in, in Scotland wondered if they might possibly be able to make golf balls out of gutta percha because they had been making them, they were called featheries, and they were made of leather and stuffed with boiled goose feathers. And this was a very highly skilled job stuffing the feathers into the uh, golf ball and they were very expensive and they only lasted maybe two or three games. Um, so this clergyman who loved to play golf but didn't like paying for the featheries made golf balls out of gutta percha and hey it worked great. And they were very much cheaper and he discovered after he'd played with one two or three times that the ball started going further. And he didn't understand why. We, we do understand why now. It was the dents and the nicks imparted by the golf clubs um, gave it better aerodynamics. And so they put dimples on golf balls. And that's why the dimples are there to this day, um, because the ball goes farther. And then golf players love that characteristic. <laughs> and now we come to a guy who was responsible for the cable. Uh, it wouldn't have happened without him. It would have happened eventually, but it wouldn't have happened nearly as soon as it did. And his name was Cyrus Field. And he came from an old New England family from Connecticut. Uh, his father was David Dudley Field, uh, a great New England clergyman. Um, he was distinguished enough as a clergyman and as an author to be listed today in the Dictionary of American Biography, which is the standard 24-volume work on distinguished Americans of the past. The Reverend David Dudley Field and his wife had eight sons. They had three daughters and eight sons. Two of the sons died. One died in childhood. One died in very early manhood. He was lost at sea. Of the six sons who lived to a full lifetime, four of them made it into the Dictionary of American Biography on their own. The two who didn't, one was a very distinguished engineer and the other was president of the Massachusetts Senate for three terms. So, he may have been a great clergyman, but clearly the Reverend David Dudley Field was a pretty good father, too. <laughs> Cyrus Field was not as intellectual as some of his brothers, just as smart, just not as interested in, in book learning. And when he was 16, he asked his father's permission to go to New York and go into business, and his father granted it. New York is unique among American colonies. The Puritans came to New England, the Quakers came to Philadelphia, the Catholics came to Maryland in order to worship as they wished to do so. The Dutch came to New York to make money and for no other reason whatsoever. In fact, they didn't even get around to building a church for 17 years. They were so busy trading furs. When they did, they named it the Church of St. Nicholas and Santa Claus has been the patron saint of New York ever since. 
So Cyrus Field came to this town that was famous for hustle and bustle and let's make a deal. And he was very, very good at doing exactly that. He owned a paper company, a wholesale paper company, and became very rich. By the time he was in his 30s, he was worth several hundred thousand dollars, which in the 1850s made you enormously rich. Uh, he lived in a great big house on Gramercy Park. Um, his brother right next door, they had a, doors that communicated between the two houses. Um, and he was sort of, he was bored with running the paper company because he was an entrepreneur at heart and once the thing was up and running and just cranking out dividends, he bored him. He was perfectly willing to take the dividends, of course. Um, and then one day his brother, Matthew Field, um, brought a guy named Frederick Gisborne over to see him because Gisborne had been running a telegraph line across the southern shore of Newfoundland and with the hopes of putting a cable across the, the Cabot Strait, the entrance to the um, St. Lawrence River and connect it to the telegraph grid in, in North America because they said that would make communication with England two days shorter because Newfoundland is one-third of the way along the Great Circle route to, to England. And Cyrus Hill wasn't very interested in that because um, they didn't think two days made that all difference because it was only one day difference to Halifax, um, which was connected to the telegraph grid already. But then he just he looked at the globe in his library and saw that you know that Newfoundland was indeed one third of the way up on the shortest route to England. And he said, "Well, hey, if we could lay a cable all the way to Ireland, then we could communication wouldn't be ten days; it would be ten minutes, and you know we could make money doing that." And so he decided to do it. He wrote a couple of people, Matthew Fontaine Murray, the great oceanographer, asking if it was possible, and Murray wrote back saying, funny you should ask, we just did a series of soundings, and we found this thing which we actually have named the Telegraph Plateau, because it's the ideal place to lay a telegraph cable. Then he asked Samuel Morse if it was possible, and Morse said, sure. Uh, Morse was a tinkerer, he was actually a great uh, portrait artist, um, but he wasn't very well technically grounded either. He'd borrowed most of his ideas from people who knew much more about telegraphy than he did. Field decides to go ahead with this, and of course he had no idea what he was getting into. Almost like if somebody in the 1950s reading about the success of the Russian Sputnik saying, hey, I've got an idea, how about a manned expedition to Mars? Because the, the longest undersea cable in 1854 was um, less than 300 miles laid across the North Sea, which never gets deeper than about 300 feet. And this would have to be 2,000 miles long and be at a depth of sometimes 15,000 feet. So he embarks upon it. He got his neighbor, Peter Cooper, the founder of the Cooper Union, the, to this day, the only American university that does not charge tuition. And he also got Moses Taylor, who was an enormously rich man who ended up controlling the gaslight industry in, in New York. And they all put in very considerable sums of money, and off they go. Starting on this, the first thing they did was delay the telegraph line across the southern shore of, of Newfoundland, which turned out to take about four times as long as they had counted on and cost five or six times as much. The southern shore of Newfoundland is not an easy place to work. If you like rain and fog, you will love Newfoundland. And then they were going to lay the cable across the, the Cabot Strait, about 80 miles. And they simply had no idea what they were doing. They ordered the cable in England, the only place in the world that could make submarine cable. It was brought over in a sailing ship. They hired a steamship in New York to go up there. 
was going to tow the sailing ship across as the sailing ship unreeled the, the cable. And they invited everybody on board to come on board the steamboat. So all the investors, um, Peter Cooper was there, the Reverend David Dudley Field, aged about 70, was there. Their wives and daughters were there in big hats and, and long skirts and parasols. And they got to St. John's in the capital of Newfoundland. They were, the whole city was full of great, large, black, amiable Newfoundland dogs. And they fell in love with them, and they bought 10 or 12, um, brought them on board. And so here was a combination between a commercial enterprise on the cutting edge of technology and a yachting party. And the captain proved to be very uncooperative. Uh, he refused to follow orders, for one thing. He said, I'll know how to sail my ship. Well, he, he may have known how to sail a ship. He didn't know where they wanted it to sail. Um, and finally, they had to cut the cable, and it was a $500,000 disaster. So they needed lots more money, and the only place to get it was England. And England was much more enthusiastic about the cable than the United States was, because England had this worldwide empire which was very difficult to communicate with. And so the British government said, okay, once the cable works, we guarantee to pay you 16,000 pounds a year which means you can borrow at 4%, you know, virtually the entire cost of, of estimated cost of laying the cable, once it works. The United States government made the same promise, although it took a great deal of screaming and yelling in Congress, because a lot of Americans think, you know, what do we need this for? Uh, but they finally did come on board. Each of the, the navies donated two ships. The U.S. lent the USS Niagara, one of the largest warships in the world, made of iron, state-of-the-art ship design. The British gave them the Agamemnon, which although it was steam-powered, um, it looked for all the world like a boat that had, that had fought at Trafalgar 50 years earlier. I mean, it was a three-decker, three-masted ship of the line that had been retrofitted for steam. And it was a lousy sailor, as most of those great big tubby ships of the line were. They had to use two ships because they wasn't no ship in the world could carry enough cable to do the whole job. The first time they started in Ireland, got out about 400 miles, and the cable snapped, and that was the end of that. There wasn't enough time. The next year, they tried it again, sailed out to the middle this time. Before they got to the middle, they were caught in one of the worst Atlantic storms um, in memory. Uh, the Agamemnon survived only because of superb seamanship on the part of the captain and the crew. It had 250 tons of cables sitting on its forward deck, which made it even more top-heavy uh, than it had been before, and he managed to save that cable. They could have just cut it and tossed it, but they did not. They survived. They tried it again. The cable snapped. They went back to England. At this point, they were derided by everybody. This was, you know, a wild goose chase. Why are we putting money into this silly thing? And Field said, look, you know, the money's been spent. We have the cable. We have enough to do it. Let's try it again. You know, we've got nothing to lose. Otherwise, we just sell the cable for scrap, and, and it's a certain disaster. So they tried it, and it worked. They unreeled it virtually without any problem whatsoever. Got to Newfoundland, hooked it up, and it, and it worked. Um, they had huge celebrations. It was like 
the second coming. George Templeton Strong um, wrote in his diary that, you know, some people are really going wild, but moderate people say it's only the greatest thing that has ever happened. They had huge parties in New York. They sent fireworks off of, of City Hall. Um, so enthusiastically, they set City Hall on fire. Um, the cupola is um, uh, a replacement because it was burned in that fire. Um, fortunately, they saved the building because it's a magnificent building. I don't approve often of what goes on inside it, but architecturally, it is wonderful. And Queen Victoria sent a message, a 99-word message to President Buchanan. What the cable company did not tell people was that the 99-word message took 16 and a half hours to transmit. Uh, the cable was working, but just barely. And then it just wasn't working at all. It just stopped. And they never did figure out exactly why. So they, they tried again. And they had to wait at that point until the Civil War, which broke out after the second attempt. They had run out of money, for one thing, and before they could begin to raise enough money, um, they had to wait for the Civil War to end. And also there was a board of inquiry. The very first time there was an official board of inquiry to find out what caused the disaster. Because the British had also had a terrible, an 800,000-pound disaster laying a cable to India through the Red Sea. That had also failed to work what went wrong, how we can do it better, learn our lessons here, and they learned all kinds of lessons. One was they didn't have a vocabulary of electricity, and so it was very hard to discuss technical issues because people were using different words and had, you know, or different meanings to the same words. And so they started coining words, and they started using the names of great scientists of the past. So words like Watt for James Watt, and Ohm for Georg Ohm, and Ampere, one of the great French um, early investors, and Volta, the uh, great Italian in investigator of, of electricity. And this is the first time scientists were honored in this way. It goes on to this day. We now have Newtons and all kinds of names. I mean, that's, you know you've arrived as a scientist when you get you know, some incomprehensible concept named after you. <laughs> they then designed a new cable. One of the problems with the old cable was it had been very quickly designed because uh, Field, his greatest virtue as an entrepreneur was his drive to let's get it done. It was also his greatest defect because he didn't give enough time for experiments. They designed a much better cable. The first cable had been about as big around as a man's little finger. Uh, the second cable was about as big around as a man's thumb, which is a considerable improvement. Um, still a very long, thin thread across the ocean. And also they had an extraordinary stroke of luck in that the greatest engineer of the 19th century, his name was Isambard Kingdom Brunel, which I think is a really great name. I mean, Dickens could have thought up that name. He designed a steamship called the Great Eastern, which was launched in the Thames River in 1858. Uh, it was, not only was it the largest ship in the world, it was five times the size of any ship afloat. And throughout its 30 years of existence, wherever it was, whether it was Bombay or Boston or Baltimore, it looked like a rowboat in a pond full of ducks. It was just gigantic. Had it, the Panama Canal existed when the Great Eastern did, the Great Eastern could not have utilized it. It was too wide to get through the Panama Canal. Brunel realized that you could go the whole you made a ship big enough because the energy required increased more or less as the square, but the, the capacity increased as the cube. So you could do more and more, and 
he said, build a big enough ship. And he designed this colossal ship and somehow talked people into paying to have it built. It was an economic disaster. There were six owners of the Great Eastern. All of them lost major money, including the scrap dealer who owned it last because it turned out to be extremely expensive to break it up for scrap. It was also absolutely perfect for laying the Atlantic cable. They could lay the whole thing uh, because it was so enormous, it was much less subject to wave action, so it was much less likely to snap the cable. Um, you could have all the workers you needed on board. Um, and since it was out of work anyway, because it was an economic white elephant, they were more than happy to uh, lease it to be used for the cable. So in 1865, off they go again. And they get four-fifths of the way across, and then it snaps. They went back to England, tail between their legs. Sure, they were going to be objects of utter derision. And in fact, everybody said, hey, you had bad luck. Now we know we can do it. All we got to do is just have good luck. And the next year, they laid the fifth attempt, went like clockwork. They then went back out, grabbed the fourth attempt, spliced it on, and within three weeks had two cables across the Atlantic Ocean. And North America has not been out of communication with Europe for more than a couple of hours ever since. Uh, it revolutionized the world. The London and Wall Street markets began to act in concert because they could now were in instant communication. Uh, newspapers, they formed the UPI, the United Press International, so they could cut cable costs so we could get European news today, which was just, you know, you could read what was going on in Europe today. Today was just an extraordinary um, thing to them. We just take it totally for granted. We just you know, want to know what the weather is in London. We find out. However, it was very expensive to use a cable. The first price was dollar a word, 15 word minimum. That was $15. And when a skilled worker was lucky to earn $5 a week, this led to considerable brevity. And also, they didn't use the capacity of the, of the two cables. And then when the French cable came in, landed here in Duxbury in 1869, it was a separate organization, competition. Competition is wonderful for capitalism. Capitalists don't like it so much, but for capitalism, it's great. Prices of both went way down, usage soared, and became very profitable. Cyrus Field became enormously rich. And the world just changed. The world just changed. And to give you an idea of how much it changed, the British declared war on Germany on August 1st, 1914. On August 2nd, 1914, a British cable ship in the dark of night sailed over to the German coast, grappled up the German cables, and cut them, forcing the Germans to communicate with the outside world by radio. And the Germans, as they always did, thought their codes were unbreakable, and the British, as they always did, broke them. Uh, the British were geniuses at, at cryptography. And one of the things they decoded was the famous Zimmerman telegram, where the Germans offered Mexico in exchange for an alliance and an attack upon the United States, offered Mexico the return of their lost provinces, roughly the southwest quarter of the United States. Um, when the British quietly gave this to the American government, the American government was convinced that maybe it was time to go over there and defeat Germany and save the British and the French's behinds because they were about to lose. And you've been listening to John Steele Gordon thread a story that most of us didn't know 
And even if you did, you didn't mind hearing again. His book is A Thread Across the Ocean, the story of the transatlantic cable. We had Stephen Ambrose tell the story in his own way when he was telling the story of the Transcontinental Railroad, of the importance of the telegraph and how it changed the world, as did the Transcontinental Railroad itself. And go to OurAmericanStories.com to listen to all of our stories. And our history stories, all of our American history stories, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go and sign up for their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. John Steele Gordon, A Thread Across the Ocean, The Story of the Transatlantic Cable. Get the book now. The story here on Our American Stories. our American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and our favorites, well, they come from you, the listeners. And up next, a story from a listener named Richard Munez. Today, he shares with us the story of an unforgettable night that changed his life when he was working in law enforcement. Take it away, Richard. I need to tell you, I'm probably the last person in the world that was cut out ever to be a cop. I took my degree in astrophysics. And right there, that means you're not this rough, tough individual. You know, you're very much uh, intellectual. However, let me tell you how astrophysicists got their jobs. They didn't go to the help wanted sections. They went to the obits. The year I graduated, no one wanted to lay down and die. So, you know, right there, I have a problem. Further, Uncle Sam sent me, uh, started sending me a letter saying, hey, you know, nice enough to give you student loans and stuff like that. Now it'd be nice enough he started paying it back. So I had to find a job. Now, I uh, started looking around. Fortunately, I'd taken a lot of classes in psychology and sociology and stuff like that. And I was always somewhat interested in police work. So I went down to our local police department, and they were hiring. I put an application. I tested for the position. And they did a background check and all that stuff. And I figured, yeah, it'll be a cold day and you know where before they ever call me. Well, guess what? About three months later, they called me. Said, hey, are you interested in coming aboard? I said, yeah. You know, I needed a job. What can I say? So I went aboard. Well, I wound up, you know, looking at a police officer, and I began to realize that maybe this isn't what I wanted. And then I got injured in the line of duty, and I mean, it just really seriously, you know, threw me into a tailspin. Wound up leaving that department for another department. Then... Sheriff Toby Madrid approached me and said, hey, you know, I need a deputy. Would you be interested in coming aboard? And I said, yeah, I'd be interested. So I joined the Canales County Sheriff's Office. And I remember it was the 27th of December. It's a day I'll never forget. It was cold. You know, after all, a couple days after Christmas in the San Luis Valley, hey, it should be cold. It was a quiet night up to that point. But it was a Saturday night. And Saturday nights have a way of going south on you really, really quick. 
Well, there's a town in Kness County called Antneedle, Colorado. Well, what happened on a Saturday night, the kids would drag Maine. What that means, you know, they're just cruising Maine. You know, they're in a car, they just go up Main Street, get to the city limits, turn, make a U-turn, come back into town, you know, it's just, just repeat the cycle. You know, after all, we didn't have cable TV down there yet, stuff like that, so you had to do something. Well, we get word of a wreck just north of Antneedle. What had been happening here is the city police have been, you know, after the kids, you know, stopping and doing U-turns in town. You know, it's not safe. Well, all they did was rather than, rather than, you know, have the cops hassle them, they just went up a little bit out, out into the county and they'd, uh, there was a crossroads there. They would make their U-turn there. Well, that's where the wreck was. It was right outside a little nightclub called the Rainbow Nightclub. I was within a mile of it, and so I, I go down there. And as I'm coming up on it, all of a sudden I realize that this car has not been hit. It's been ran over by a semi. I get out, you know, I got my got my my cruiser position there, and of course everybody in the bar is coming out. And they want to see what the heck's going on. I mean, it's you know a little bit like sharks, you know, uh, showing up, you know, when, when there's a little bit of blood in the water. They got to see what's going on. Well, I get out there, and the first thing I see is that the, the literally the front end of the car is crumpled down like a, like a tin can. And I run up there, and I'm, I can see the passenger. He's in bad shape. I mean, he's torn up pretty good. He's unconscious, and you know he's barely barely able to breathe and stuff like that. I can't see the driver. I mean, the car literally crumpled down around him. And there's two girls in the back seat. They look like they're okay. The only person I saw that right away that I knew was a guy, a guy by the name of Pat Rice. Funny part about it was Pat had been an inmate in our jail a couple weeks before. The Red Cross had just recently come down and recertified us on first aid and CPR. And Pat was a trustee. And he saw this and he thought to himself, hey, this looks pretty cool, stuff like that. And he asked, hey, you know, can I take this? I might need it someday. And I told him, I said, I'll tell you what, I will pay for your, your class and your test, provided if I ever need you, you're there for me. Okay, that's cool. Well, guess what? I collected that night. And he and I went over there, and we started uh, getting the girls out of the car. I had to crawl into the car. We got the first girl out okay, but the other girl, she was kind of pinned in the car a little bit by the seat. I had to get in there and push the seat off of her, and she had to crawl over me to get out. Now we've got the driver and the passenger. I'm very reluctant to move the passenger, because I can see that he is seriously injured, and I'm very much afraid that if I move him, I'm going to do more damage than good. And I'm trying to find the driver. So I'm reaching through the wreckage, and I found him. And he, astonishingly, he's still alive. He's, he's unconscious also. So we're there, and I'm just going from one, from the passenger to the driver, passenger to the driver. I'm checking their, check, make sure they have a pulse, stuff like that. And I'm waiting for the ambulance to show up. I just check the passenger. I go back to the driver, check him, go back to the passenger, nothing. In about the 10 seconds between the time I checked him to going back to the driver to check him, his heart had stopped. And that's when I yelled at Pat. I said, he's in full arrest. Let's get him out of here and start doing CPR. So we started doing CPR on it. You want to find out what kind of shape you're in? Do CPR on a fellow human being. I mean, it is a demanding task. And uh, once you start, you don't stop. That's all there is to it. So here's dozens of people standing around watching this. Me and another guy are fighting to keep somebody alive. And the EMTs finally showed up. 
I remember one of the EMTs jumped out and yelled, who's worse? And I pointed down and said, he is. And Pat was exhausted. He had been sitting there doing CPR along with me. I'll join this. EMT joins me and we start doing CPR. I took over the breathing part of it. Well, if he did the compression, the guy threw up in my mouth. And that did it. I mean, I had nothing left. I walked away. I mean, I kind of stumbled away and I started throwing up. When Pat saw me throwing up, he started throwing up. And I remember somebody starts laughing and say, what's the matter, Rice, can't you take it? And Pat hauled off and popped the guy in the face. And the guy comes, oh, I want to press charges like that. And I just basically looked at him and says, get the hell out of here. Well, we wound up having to take the car apart to get the driver out. Passenger died at the scene. I mean, there was nothing we could do for him. Got him out, got him flat for life to Denver, where he wound up dying. The two girls made it through just fine. After we got more help out there, they sent Pat and I to get cleaned up. And when we got to the sheriff's office, I saw what we looked like. We were covered from head to toe with other people's blood. And the funny part about it was we were actually starving to death. We were hungry beyond a measure. So I made us a couple of sandwiches and stuff like that. We washed our hands, we sat there and we ate while covered with somebody else's blood. And I remember a few days before that, I had a discussion with my parents. They thought I had a pretty cake job. They completely neglected the fact that as a police officer, there was a very real chance every time I left home, there was a, I'd never be coming back. Well, I decided to show them just what kind of a cake job I had. I had the dispatcher take a picture of me. Here I am, covered head to toe with somebody else's blood, and I had him take a picture of me. Now I was staying with my folks at the time. When I got home, I left that picture on the dining room table. So the next time they told me that I had a cake job, all I had to do was look at that. A couple weeks later, I was working a uh, basketball game, provided security for it. And um, I just walked out to check the parking lot, and I walked back in, and all of a sudden there's this little cheerleader standing in front of me. She's in uniform. And she sticks out her hand, and she introduces herself. And she says, I want to thank you for trying to save my brother's life. I remember I stammered something, and for a long time it haunted me. I didn't have an answer for her. You know, what? Why? What was what was the point of her brother passing away? What what happened here? Did any good come out of it? Well, there is some good. It took me a long time to realize it. And I'm a man of prayer, and I'm a man of faith. And I used to pray to God, what was the point of all this? You know, was was it wasted? And then, in the course of writing my first novel, I'm relating the incident. What I've done is I've taken the incident, I put it in, I made it happen to somebody else, basically. But in the middle of all this, he's talking to his pastor about it. And the answer came. Were you the same person you were when, when, this, when this was over? And I had to admit I wasn't. I mean, that evening, I was seriously thinking about hanging up law enforcement forever. I mean, like I said, I took my degree in astrophysics. I'm an intellectual. Last thing I ever thought myself of uh, as was a tough guy out there, you know, to fight and wrestle around with the bad guys and stuff like that. I enjoyed, enjoyed the detective work, but I didn't enjoy that, you know, that, that part of it. Well, guess what? That night changed me. Well, in this case, it transformed me for the good. It made me realize, at least on some level, I was out there trying to make a difference.
And great job to Monty, as always, and a special thanks to Richard Munez for sharing that story. And he was right. He was a different man. It had changed him. If it didn't, well, maybe that's when you hang it up, when it doesn't change you. By the way, Saturday nights do have a way of going south very, very fast, and cops and first responders and EMTs and firemen all know this. And they're out there while we're home. And I can just see that little rainbow club, and I can see the wreck and then you can hear the parents being told the news. But that that girl came up and said, I want to thank you for trying to save my brother's life. Well, it's true, and he did. Richard did. And so many cops, so many first responders do this work every day for all of us. And we love telling their stories. And send them to OurAmericanStories.com. They are some of our favorite soldiers' stories, too. Richard Munez's story, The Wreck, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on the show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And this next story comes to us, well, Greg Hengler brings it to us, and actually the person providing this story is a listener in Colorado. Charles Tex Watson was just a young guy from Texas in 1969 when he came under the spell of drugs in Charles Manson and helped kill seven people. Watson attended Cal State Los Angeles but dropped out less than half a semester later, got a job selling wigs, and began living it up in the party scene of Los Angeles. One fateful evening, he was driving home and picked up a hitchhiker. In Watson's words, Hitchhikers were pretty common on Sunset Boulevard, and I pulled over to pick one up. When he told me his name was Dennis Wilson, it didn't mean anything to me. But when he said he was one of the Beach Boys, I was impressed. Wilson, the Beach Boys drummer, then directed Watson to his home on Sunset Boulevard in the Pacific Palisades area of Los Angeles. Watson was shocked when he pulled up. In the living room, Watson found a man sitting on the floor with his guitar, surrounded by six young women. He looked up, Watson later recalled, and the first thing I felt was a sort of gentleness, an embracing kind of acceptance and love. Another man at the house introduced them. This is Charlie, Charlie Manson. On August 9, 1969, under the direction of Charles Manson, Watson and three other Manson girls murdered pregnant actress Sharon Tate and four other people on Benedict Canyon. Manson girl Susan Atkins later recalled Watson waking up a victim in the living room whispering, I'm the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. The following night, Manson accompanied the previous night's killers and supervised the murder of two more victims in Los Feliz. These murders are considered some of the most gruesome and shocking in American history. Tex Watson stayed in Los Angeles for almost two months before fleeing to Texas, where he was arrested. But it's those two months following the Manson murders where the story from our listener in Colorado picks up. 
Here's Patty Kingsbaker. This story happened in 1969. I had graduated from high school in Miami and moved out to California to live with my brother, who was living in Los Angeles at the time. And it was the 60s. My brother was 10 years older than me. So we kind of, you know, it felt like we had really grown up in different generations. I mean, our ideals. And he was a little uh, worried about me being a hippie and maybe going down the wrong path with him at this time of my life. So I had been in Los Angeles for a year, um, had gotten to know a few people and, you know, was doing the things that kids in the 60s did. You know, one of the days I was with a friend of mine and I'm not sure why I was hitchhiking. Either I didn't have a car yet. It was kind of probably right after I got there. But we had hitchhiked from the valley, San Fernando Valley, over to the beach And when my brother heard about it, he about lost his mind. And he was like, no, no, you were not hit anyway. So I eventually got a car. And, you know, it was a time when things were just more open. And a lot of people were hitchhiking. And, you know, we picked people up. You know, it was just what happened. But this one night, I had been over in Malibu with some friends. And I was coming back into the valley, and I was coming through Topanga Canyon. And when I made the turn off Pacific Coast Highway, there was this guy. It was raining. It was like torrential raining. And there was this guy on the side of the road. And so I pulled over. A, he was out there in the middle of this rainstorm. And B, that's just what we did back then. So I pulled over. But as soon as he opened the door and got in my car, I just got this sick feeling. I it, it was I don't know what evil is. I don't know what it is. But I felt it. I was scared. I was absolutely scared and I was like I knew right then I had made a mistake letting this guy in my car. But there was nothing I could do. He's there. So we're driving through Topanga Canyon. Now I mean and it is torrential rain. And there are mudslides on the road. I'm scared. Um, I'm having to go much slower than I would have gone through the canyon. I'm just thinking, God, get me to the other side of this canyon. And he was going to Reseda. I remember that. And I lived in Woodland Hills, which is another part of the San Fernando Valley. But I just wanted him out of my car. And he was trying to engage me in conversation. And I was just like, I finally just said, you know, I really can't talk. I can't talk. I really just need to concentrate on the road and my driving. I just can't talk. I was, I've never felt anything like that before. So when we got to the other end of Topanga Canyon, I just pulled over and I said, I'm really sorry, but I'm going a different direction and um, I need to leave you here. But And he was like, okay. And he got out and there was no incident. I mean, there's nothing, nothing bad happened, but it was just that feeling just stuck with me. And I was just like, I, I, I didn't get it. It was a few months later that I picked up the paper one day, and on the front of the paper were the pictures of the Manson family. 
And the guy who was in my car that night was Tex Watson. Needless to say, I've never picked up another hitchhiker, ever. That was enough. That night, just that feeling taught me not to do that. And there's been times I've passed people that I think, oh, but I just have never been able to bring myself to do it. Well, that's a heck of a hitchhiker story, picking up Tex Watson, one of the worst killers and murderers of all time. And she could feel evil. I don't know her walk or faith walk or whether she is a person of faith or not, but boy... We've all come in presence of evil. We know it. We can feel it. And all we want to do is flee. Patty Kingsbaker's story, a great listener's story, a really awful hitchhiker's story, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and it's time for our American Dreamers series which is sponsored as always by the great folks at the Job Creators Network working hard to perpetuate policies that help small businesses become big ones and as we tell you over and over again without small businesses where do the tax dollars come to support our firemen our police and everything else that we care about including the safety net here in our great country. And today, Aubrey Riggle brings us the story of someone you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met. I got married at 16, and I had my first child when I was 17, and my next child at 18, and my next child at 19. So I ended up with three babies, and finally my aunt told me to call the last one caboose and let it be the end. You're listening to Marcia Taylor, likely the first woman to own and operate a trucking company, Bennett International Group. But before she was a leading businesswoman, she was a young mom of three babies, growing a startup business into what is now one of the biggest trucking companies in America. I grew up in Southern Illinois on a small farm with my mother and father and brother that was seven years younger than I was. My mother always had a big garden and she had a lot of chickens and I would help her can. And my dad always had a lot of wheat and soybeans and corn. So we'd help him in the fields and it was a great way to grow up. When I was 14, my father, he had been sick and he just uh, got up and just passed out. And I mean, he just, right then he just died and left my mother and I and, and my little brother Duane with a farm. It was just a devastating time for me. I ended up being the kind of the responsible one in the family. I married really early. I think I was being a little rebellious. My husband and I lived on the farm and he worked on the railroad and I was a housewife. Neither one of us was really ready to be married nor ready for the responsibility that having three small children. And my husband started drinking and it just become a very, very abusive relationship, both physically and mentally. Well, I knew I was going to have to try to get away to get out of that situation. Some of the people in our neighborhood had bought the rights to this small trucking company in Georgia. I'd said, well, you know, I'd like to go to Georgia. And 
Uh, so they, there was an opening and I jumped at the chance. I knew nothing about trucking. I, I mean, literally nothing. But I knew it might be a way for me to get the children and to move to a different location. We loaded everything we had up with a truck and a 40-foot van and all of our belongings took up about 10 feet of that van and we moved to Georgia and moved into a mobile home and was able to, at that point, file for divorce. I was working and I had the children were like the fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Actually, the man that I went to work for, we ended up getting together and uh, we ended up getting married. My mother had not been in the best of health. We called her and asked her if she wanted to come to Georgia and live with us and help with the children so I could really focus on work. So we worked really hard and in 1974, we had the opportunity to buy this little small trucking company that had 15 trucks and 30 trailers and we only had like $500 in cash to be able to start this business, but they sold it to us on credit. In order for us to make payroll, I would do all the billing on Wednesday, get everything billed, and one of us would take all of our invoices and meet one of our drivers halfway. Our driver would pick up the invoices, take them to our customer, and he would process them write a check, we'd do the same thing, the driver we'd meet just halfway, pick up the check, deposit it in the bank and so I could make payroll on Friday. Our customer helped save us all through that time by getting our invoices processed so I could make payroll. I don't think you could start a business with $500 and do what we did now because of the way that the industry is and the way that people want to pay your invoices. Now customers want to wait 60, 120 days before they pay you. It was a difficult time, but I look back and it was, it was a good time. We were working to build this company together. Marcia was finally getting the business on solid footing until the ground was taken out from under her. My husband, J.D., uh, was a heavy smoker and it was really affecting his health. We had gone to Houston, Texas to look at a rail site for one of our customers. And while we were there, I saw this billboard and it was advertising a stop smoking clinic. He knew he needed to stop smoking because it was causing him to begin to have emphysema. So we went to this uh, smoking clinic that was attached to one of the large hospitals. They injected him in the nose and in his ear and in his throat. And we went home, and the middle of the next week, we were at work, and, and my husband said, you know, I, I, I don't feel well, I think I need to go home. So he went home, and whenever I got there, I went into our bedroom to check on him, and he was just burning up. So I said, I think we need to take you to the emergency room, because he never got sick. So they started checking him, and his blood pressure kept dropping. So uh, they came and they said, well, I think we're going to take him up to intensive care. We just want to see what's going on. The next morning at about six o'clock, they came out and they said, I want you to prepare yourself because I don't think he's going to make it. And I was just like, what? Well, how could this be? He was in the hospital for three days to where he, his body just started shutting down. Through those injections, he had developed a gram-negative bacteria. They had injected this 
bacteria into his body. They had to first find out what kind of injections he had gotten, which really wasn't much of anything. Then they had to discover what this bacteria was, and, and they, they just couldn't stop it. And they took him into surgery, and he basically coded in surgery, and he died the next morning. So all at once, I was just kind of left with this business that we had finally had gotten a bank that would take a chance on us and had gotten a small credit line. And now this is back in the 80s, and there really wasn't any women that was in the, that was in the transportation business. Certainly nobody ran a trucking company. And I was really worried that the bank would call our note because they wouldn't trust, you know, a woman. And I have three small children that I still have to take care of, and my mom. But, you know, I just had to put all my faith in God that whatever was supposed to happen, He would see me through. My drivers all just kind of gathered around. There was 30 people that worked here at that time. And everybody just said, look, we can do this. We just went to work. I bet I worked, I don't know, 60, 70 hours a week. It took a lot because we're not in a business that's an eight to five business. You don't turn the responsibility off whenever you go home. Through her faith, the support of her employees, and her dedication to the company, Marcia pulled through. But her children were still small, and her success came at a cost. I feel guilty that I didn't get to spend more time with my children when they were growing up. I wish I could go back and change that. I mean, my mom was there, thankfully, and she always made sure that there was a meal on the table, that they got to the ball games, that they got wherever they needed to get to. But I feel like I missed a lot. Now I've gotten to work with my children now, you know, and so I'm very fortunate in that way. When they were small, they would come to work with me. They always had to be involved. When they got sick, they slept on a cot behind my desk. They really learned it from the ground up. It's just been a great blessing to me to be able to work with my family and children. Sometimes they'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your mother. And I'll say, well, you know, it's not always easy to work with your kids either. But even my grandchildren, I don't get to spend near as much time with my grandchildren as I'd like to, even though I have four of them that work here. It's had a lot of ups and downs, but God's always seen me through. And we've been listening to Marcia Taylor, and she's the owner of the trucking company Bennett International Group. What a story thus far, and we're going to hear more on the other side. And my goodness, now we know, now you know, and we try to do this for you to empathize with the people meeting payroll, because it's no small task. And it's a heck of a responsibility to be responsible not just for yourself and your family, but for dozens of other families, and to have that pressure. And the price that's paid, I mean, she had sacrifices to make and regrets. And none of these success stories are Pollyannish here on Our American Stories. Everything comes with a price, folks. Everything. And when we come back, more of Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer's story. My goodness, as good a one as we've had here on this show after these commercial messages. More with Our American Stories.
And we return to Marcia Taylor's story here on Our American Stories. And as always, again, Our American Dreamers series are always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network fighting for small business owners across this great country. And when we last left off, well, Marcia knew she had to differentiate herself from all of her competitors in order to survive. And so she did. We started to say, what could be our specialty? What can we do that, that limits our competition? Our niche is things that are a little bigger, a little heavier, that require tarps, that require a little bit more work to haul. Anything that's too large to be um, hauled that needs to be driven, you know, we'll put a driver in it, you name it. So today we're made up of 14 different companies that all do different types of transportation. We have about 3,200 drivers and owner-operators and about 400 different offices. We're an international company. We do a lot of ag equipment, air conditioners, rockets. We do a lot of work for the government. One of the newest ventures that we've just gotten into is AA&E, which is ammunition, explosives, so forth. There's only 17 carriers allowed to move AA&E. We just did the Mercedes-Benz Stadium and uh, the big Falcon that's out in front. We delivered that Falcon. We're international. We um, import and export, and we bring a lot of wine in from Argentina. We export a lot of sweet potatoes. We move a lot of manufactured housing, and when there's some sort of a national disaster, if they require manufactured housing, that we'll get involved with FEMA to help move those units. In fact, they're the largest mover of manufactured housing, better known as mobile homes, in America. They're the largest mover for the United States Department of Defense, and they're also the largest driveway company in the country, meaning their pickup truck drivers deliver upwards of 450 campers and RVs across the country every single week, and it doesn't end there. We're very involved in oil and gas and do a lot with the wind industry. We move big windmills that are being installed in all the wind farms, both by hauling and through our crane and rigging. Four years ago, we started a crane and rigging company. We have cranes up to 900 ton, and so that's a very niche market. I think God has just always led us where we needed to go. Nearly 71% of all freight moved in the United States goes on trucks. Without truck drivers, our economy would come to a standstill. Yet the American Trucking Association figures that 60,000 more drivers are needed by trucking companies. And that number is predicted to reach 100,000 in just the next few years. The trucking industry is always up and down. I mean, there's always a lot of things going on, but probably one of the the most difficult things is finding uh, really qualified drivers that want to get into this industry. When you do have a driver come to you, you want them to enjoy working for you and you want them to stay. Our retention rate is about 39%, which is really very good. A lot of companies' retention rate is over 100%. That means her competitors are losing all of their drivers for the year, and then some. It's a tough business, but we've got a lot of drivers that's been with us for a lot of years. They get used to where they like to run, they get used to what they like to do, and, you know, they stay with us. Our business is usually one of the leading indicators of what's happening in the economy. 
We're usually the first to see it pick up and the first to see it slow down. Over the years, there's been numerous times that we weren't sure if you know we were going to have enough money. Whenever the bottom fell out of everything in the 80s, we had made like a million dollars at that point in time, which was a lot of money for us. And it's like the recession hit and it's just like everything just stopped. In two months, we had lost the million we had made and another million. We never really wanted to lay anybody off. We worked some flexible hours and people that could would maybe take one day off and then some of the people that couldn't afford to take a day off, somebody else would give them the, their day. And so we were able to make our way through it by not having to lay anybody off. And in the 2008 recession? Same thing. You just kind of buckle in and you just manage your balance sheet. And one thing about our business, another reason I say God is so good, is because we do different types of things. It has always seemed like when one thing was really slow or bad, one piece of the industry, something else was good. When things were so slow, we ended up getting a huge contract that saw us through. We've always come out of recessions and done well. Last year was one of the best years we have ever had in our industry, simply because I think there was so much pent-up business out there. You could just feel it. We did over a half a billion dollars. We're pretty excited about that. That was a big milestone for us. With such a big milestone in the books, does Marcia, who is now 74, have any intention of retiring soon? Like most successful business owners, absolutely not. This is my family. There's people that's been here for many, many years. I can't imagine not being here. About three or four years ago, I guess, my kids kind of said, you know, we're tired. We've been working a lot. And they've been working a lot of years. They said, we're ready to retire. And I said, you know, I, okay, we'll think about maybe selling off some, keeping some. But then I thought, it's not fair to my grandchildren. They work here. This is a good place for them. And we just need to work as long as we can. Also, I firmly believe that you should get up every day and work to make a difference. I feel like I can do that here. And not just through her business, but through her foundation, Marcia has made a difference. About five years ago, we started a foundation based on Christian values where we would give back 10% of our earnings each year. One of the things we do is we have a friend that runs a camp in um, Old Town, Florida. It's a Christian camp. And we take a week, every year we call it Camp Bennett, and we sponsor employees' children or grandchildren. And then we also sponsor kids that just maybe wouldn't have the opportunity to go to the camp. Every year there's usually like 40 or 50 kids will be saved and several they'll be baptized. That's one of the things that we enjoy. We just sponsored several wreaths across America. We put 15,000 wreaths on the graves at Andersonville a Cemetery. From back during the Civil War, maybe they're old, old gravesides that there's nobody left that remembers those gravesides. Drivers will deliver wreaths to the cemetery and get people wreaths placed on these gravesides. It's, it's a very moving and it's a wonderful way to honor some of our veterans. We try to use this company to help show Christian love. I definitely feel that this is a ministry. It allows us to reach people that we might not reach otherwise. 
both through our foundation and then just every day. I had a uh, vice president of safety, rough guy. Sometimes his language wasn't the best. Just being here, being in this environment, us saying prayers before meetings, ended up, he came to Christ. And he had told me many times that he thought if he was not working in this environment, that probably would not have happened. Being able to use this company to help people is the greatest sense of fulfillment. And that was Marcia Taylor. What a voice. What a life story. Three babies by 19, small town life in southern Illinois, which is like small town rural life everywhere in this great country. But it made her who she was. A really difficult first marriage, a divorce. She took a chance, moved to another state with not much money, gave a shot at a company and a business she didn't even know. And my goodness, she knows it now. $500 million in business. But that's not what she's most proud of. You heard it. Keeping the people together through a recession, not laying people off, and transmitting her values through work. And it is one of the great ways we do it, folks. What we do is often who we are and what we make of it. Marcia Taylor's story, an American dreamer's story, as good as any we've done here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and today we bring you the story of Tom Ryan. And Tom is a 95-year-old listener of our show on KABC in Los Angeles. Tom had an unusual upbringing. He grew up on Long Island, New York, living behind a funeral parlor run by his family. And he wrote a book about it entitled Love in the Ashes. Today we bring you the second of his stories for us. Something tells me there are going to be a lot more. This one is called A Grave Escape. While not a love story like the last, it's just as wild. Here's Tom. I was there on Saturday morning when the sheriff arrived to talk to Grandma. It was the day after the big snowstorm. My folks were away and I had stayed with Grandma overnight. At age 10, I was too young to stay home alone, but staying at Grandma's was not too cool either because, you see, she ran a funeral home. Sometimes there were dead bodies only a few steps from the living room at the back of the house where we watched TV. It was hard to get too relaxed when I looked over at the dark doorway leading to the bodies. That Friday night, there was a very old lady being waked in one of the chapels, Mrs. Jackson, a friend of Grandma's who had died of cancer. The sheriff sat at the kitchen table with his notebook in front of him. He asked Grandma if anything unusual had happened the last night. 
because they were searching for an escaped convict from a prison two towns away. He is a murderer and very dangerous, the sheriff said. They were setting up roadblocks to try to catch him. Grandma didn't answer directly, but said, we have a funeral going out this morning, old Mrs. Jackson. We had to put her in a closed casket because the cancer was so bad. Will the hearse and the limos be able to get to the cemetery, Grandma asked. Yes, the sheriff replied. The road is open to the cemetery. What about anything happening last night? Grandma gave me a stern look that he couldn't see and told him nothing had happened. It was real quiet, she said. I didn't say a word, but as soon as the sheriff left, I asked her what was going on. It wasn't like Grandma to lie. She just shook her head and started to cry. I thought back about last night and remembered that shortly before dark, Grandma kept looking out the side window on the driveway every few minutes since she was expecting a delivery of new caskets. Suddenly, there were yellow headlights shining on the snow outside the window, and a loud knocking came on the side door where the caskets were brought in. Fred, the driver, shouted, I have to hurry before I get snowed in. He had unloaded two caskets and started on another one. Wait, Grandma said, I only ordered two, not three. I have to leave this one too, Fred said. I'll never get to the funeral home in the next town, and I don't want the weight on my truck. Okay, Grandma said, if it helps you out. After he was gone, Grandma closed up tight my folks were supposed to call to see how things were, but the phone wasn't working. The TV weatherman said the lines were down all over and roads were closed, so we were all by ourselves. After a while, I started to fall asleep, and Grandma helped me upstairs and put me into a soft feather bed. She left the door open a little so some light came in. I remember that I fell asleep, but woke up later when I thought I heard voices downstairs. I had started to get out of bed, but it was so cold, I crawled back in. The next morning, I asked Grandma about it, but she said I must have dreamed it. Later in the morning, the men who worked for Grandma came in and then loaded the casket into the hearse. When my folks came to pick me up, I saw Grandma holding onto my father's arm and talking to him. I heard her say, I need your help. She took him into the office and closed the door. I thought I heard her crying. It was five years later when Grandma died that my folks told me the real story of what had happened that Friday night. It seemed that the voices I thought I had heard were those of Grandma and the escaped convict. The caskets that were delivered that night were made by prison labor, and the convict, with the nickname of Rabbit, had hidden in one of those empty caskets. When the delivery man had left, Rabbit had opened the inside latch and let himself out of the casket. He didn't know, however, that Grandma had fallen asleep in her big chair in the living room, and she woke up startled and scared to see him standing near the fireplace. 
holding a large knife he had taken from the embalming room. Threatening her to silence by holding the knife under her throat, he asked for car keys and money. But Grandma didn't have a car and didn't drive. When he realized that the storm had blocked the roads and there was no phone service, he asked Grandma when someone was coming with a car. She told him that there was one funeral schedule for the next morning if the roads were open and men coming with a hearse and limousine. When he saw some of my things on the couch and found out that I was upstairs, Grandma pleaded with him to let me sleep. She would help him get in the casket with Mrs. Jackson and be taken away in the hearse the next morning to the cemetery. He could then sneak out of the casket when it was left in the cemetery storeroom for a few minutes until the family arrived. Rabbit didn't like the idea at all, especially getting into the coffin with a dead lady. He decided that he had no other choice, but he made it very clear to Grandma that if she was fooling him and he was caught, he would escape again and kill not only her, but also all of her family. Grandma was terrified by this evil man. It was arranged that early on Saturday morning, Rabbit would get into the casket and then Grandma would close it and latch it shut. He was very hesitant, especially when he saw and smelled old Mrs. Jackson. But finally, he climbed in, holding his nose and threatening Grandma with a painful death if things didn't work out. He also ordered Grandma to get him some hot coffee in a thermos so that he could drink it when it got cold in the casket and she did so just before closing the lid. The plan did work. When the man came and took the casket away and loaded it into the hearse, Grandma hadn't said anything about Rabbit being in the casket. After his private meeting with Grandma, my dad had immediately called the sheriff and arranged to stop in and see him. The police still hadn't found Rabbit, despite the roadblocks and searches of the nearby forests. They were mystified as to how he could have disappeared so completely. Sheriff, my dad said, as you know, this man was a murderer who would stop at nothing to escape. He told the sheriff how Rabbit had hidden in the casket at the prison and had ended up in Grandma's funeral home. He also explained how Rabbit had threatened Grandma and her family, so she was forced to help him escape in Mrs. Jackson's casket. What? said the sheriff. Why didn't she call me as soon as he was in the casket? I could have nabbed him right then and there. She was too scared, sheriff, but my dad continued a little smile playing around his lips and pride in his voice. She was also smart enough to have slipped a large amount of sleeping pills into the coffee she gave him to drink in the casket. The sheriff thought for a moment and said, wait, if Rabbit drank that coffee, heck, he might have been buried alive in the casket with Mrs. Jackson. The sheriff almost shouted as he got his phone out. We'll have to dig up the casket immediately. If we find him in the casket, I may have to take Grandma into custody. 
she could be in a lot of trouble. Wait, my dad said, wait a minute, Sheriff, before you do anything. Wait? No, no, we can't lose any more time. That man may still be alive. If there was enough air in the casket, maybe he is. The sheriff was now calling to his assistants as he rose from his chair. Get the car ready, ready to roll, and call the coroner. No, sheriff, please listen, my father replied quietly. Sit down a minute. You see, there is no casket. No casket? The sheriff looked confused. Of course there is a casket. They had the funeral, and it was buried this morning. No, my father replied quietly. You see, Sheriff, Mrs. Jackson's last wishes were that she be cremated. My goodness, it does not get better than that, folks, and that's why I say something tells me we'll be hearing more from Tom Ryan And by the way, we want your stories. And as you can tell, we don't discriminate. 95, 10 years old, the North, the South, the East, the West, Christian, atheist, we don't care. We love a good story. Tom Ryan's story, his grandma's story, my goodness, poor rabbit story, here on Our American Stories. Hi, this is Robbie, and I'm one of the new producers of Our American Stories. In my short time here, I've been able to help people tell some amazing stories, and you can find them on ouramericannetwork.org. But now it's your turn. I'd like to help you tell your story to our listeners. Just record it and send it over to yourstory at oanetwork.org. That's yourstory at oanetwork.org. Can't wait to hear it. Hey, 